Well, Matt, uh, it's the last night of here, man. It's the last night of here. Joe, are you excited? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good, me too. I, I feel great. I've had a great day today. Me too. It's yeah, been yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So I you, love being here. You know here. how uh, Psalm 103, uh, one of my favorite psalms says that God uh, satisfies our desires with good things. That's right. So that our youth is restored like the eagles, you yep. know, which I don't even really know what that means, you know, like <laughs> a young eagle or whatever. But, I don't know. But, man, I feel young today. Good. And I'm an old man. Good. So, uh, so, so God's, you know, doing a work in our life, and I know that I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, yeah. the chance to be up here uh, with you and with all these good folks. Me too. Yeah, I just, I, I want to just take a moment to say thank you to you guys. You know, I mean, thank you for allowing us the opportunity to open up God's Word to you, something that you do on a regular basis. Um, you also teach other people how to do this. I know you listen to a lot of preaching, you listen to a lot of teaching, um, but just thank you for the great conversation and the dialogue about the things that. Um, that have been taught both in the evening and in the morning. And uh, I mean, probably for both of us, we just can say thank you, you know, for engaging the way that you have. Um, we're really grateful for that. It's been good to be with you guys. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so you yeah. ready? Wanna yeah. Go ahead and pray. Let's yeah, go pray. ahead and bow. Uh, Lord, we want to steward well tonight the moments that uh, we have together. Lord, we recognize that all around the world is that there are men and women and boys and girls that would just give almost anything to be experiencing some of the things that we're experiencing and being able to uh, gather together uh, in freedom to, uh, to worship you, Lord, unafraid of that, and also to uh, feast upon your word uh, together. Lord, we uh, just recognize, God, what a privilege that is. And, uh, Lord, we want to steward it well tonight, God, with all that, uh, that we are, that you would have our hearts, that you would have our attention mm -hmm. And also, uh, God, uh, that we would come here believing that you want to use your word to speak to us, to each one of us individually. And I pray that you just use your servant, Matt, God, as your instrument tonight to that end. And I just pray and lift this time up to you then in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lyle. Um, you know, uh, the, the Fight Club story that Lyle and I started with was kind of a, um, just meant to be a fun story, although it was a reality um, the Fight Club happened, and then it didn't happen, and, um, and I can tell you that um, whatever, uh, whatever, whatever fight I might have gotten into in high school, Lyle, after that, it was, uh, it, was, um, it was always me sticking my neck out for someone else. Um, it was always me, like, seeing someone get bullied. It was always me um, seeing someone being taken advantage of, and there was just something about that that just did not sit with me. I couldn't let it go. Um, I was always sticking my neck out for other people, and... Um, and I've had some times in life where I've needed other people to stick their neck out for me. You know, maybe you have too. I'm assuming this is part of the reason we're all in this room together. And part of the reason we pastor and we shepherd and we teach and we lead. Like, this is inherently what pastors do. They, they stick their neck out for other people. You know, they, they, they put their own life on the line for other people. And um, I know many of you have done that, some of you, for many more years than I have, and I just want to say thank you. I think that's definitely something that's a reflection of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see that here this evening. Um, this is the way that uh, Restore began, the renewal ministry that, that we're so privileged to do. Um, we realized that there were other pastors and their spouses that didn't have the same opportunities that we had, and we just decided we're going to go for something like we're going we're gonna to put together this ministry plan because we sense God leading us in it. And we're going to go find the places and we're going to go raise the money. And we're going to go create the curriculum. And we're just going to go like stick our necks out for pastors and advocate for them. 
We're going to advocate for them because that's what they need. They need someone to fight for them. They need someone to do it on their behalf. This is a reflection of Jesus Christ, correct? He does something on our behalf. He advocates for us. He, the Holy Spirit now is our advocate. We, we, this, is, this is the story of our God. And that, um, that story for us led into um, our church really being a place where a lot of, of pastors would find their way, a lot of wounded pastors would find their way into the life of our church. And it's just historically been one of the ways our church has served the larger body of Christ, and we're really glad about it because it's something we love to do. There was one guy in particular that came in after having been part of a, a church planting movement that was sort of a, in the Christian news place. I don't want to really mention it, but... Uh, you know, he, he had been wounded, and he'd been part of that movement, and, um, and it was a very kind of public kind of thing, and he ended up in our little church in a, in a private kind of way. He was very wounded. I remember the first time we sat down in Wahoo's Fish Tacos, he told me he would never pastor again. He was done. But something in me told me that, no, I just kind of need, need to stick my neck out for this guy. I need, to, I need to sacrifice for this guy. I need to do something for him. And so Dean and I went out, and we raised the money, and we, we, you know, we procured the place. And, and we said, we think you need to come to one of our renewal weekends. And we just put on this great weekend for them and lavished all kinds of stuff on them. And we began to work with them and meet with them. And I began to invite him back into the life of the church. He began to serve in the church. We kind of became friends. Um, Eventually, he came into our training program and our apprentice academy. He went through that. He went through our elder training. Eventually, he became an elder again in our church. Eventually, he began to teach the Bible again. And he, um, he began to teach every, I don't know, maybe five, six weeks in our church. He was different than, than, than I was. He was a manuscript, or I'm kind of not, and a lot of different things like that. But, um, you know, he, uh, he did a great job. And there came a point where, you know, I just feel like I, I, I kind of I did everything I could for this guy, and, uh, and it ended up sort of going, going bad, you know? A guy who probably thought um, he could preach better than I could preach, and maybe he could. Or that he could lead better than I could lead, and maybe he could. And so one of our elders one day took him to coffee and said, hey, I kind of see what's going on here, and it's not going to go on here. One of our elders kind of stuck his neck out for me in a, in, a, in, a, in a time when I couldn't just do it for myself. Maybe it was a little awkward to do. He eventually moved to another state and um, tried to help replant and pastor a church for three years and really had a hard time and ended up coming back to Irvine and back to our church. So I invited him again, in again, and I stuck my neck out for him again, and I just thought, this is what Jesus does for us, and so this is what I'm going to do for him. And so lo and behold, he gets back involved in the life of the church, not as an elder, but just as a, a, a partner, right, but leading a community group, and, um, and that sort of went bad again. And, um, and, you know, it was, it was a moment where my elder said, look, um, time out. Um, we're we're going to handle this for you. We're going to kind of take this contending for you. We're going to kind of take this fight for you. And it was one of the first times in, in vocational ministry where I felt like, I don't know how else to do this. And I need someone to do it for me. I need someone to fight on my behalf. And I didn't even have to ask. My elders said, you're not doing any of this. We're doing all of this. And they handled it. And I just thought, man, <laughs> it feels so good. It, feel, it felt so good to have someone fight for me when I felt uneasy about fighting for myself. I, I didn't want to sort of, you know, prove my own points or sort of defend myself when I, I didn't think I had done anything awry. You know, they, they did it for me. There's something about someone else advocating for you. There's something about someone else fighting for you when you simply can't fight for yourself the way you might want to or the way you might need to.
I feel like my elders are my brothers. I'm the oldest of three kids. Um, I have two younger sisters, all, both two and a half years younger. We're all two and a half years younger than, than each other. And I, I, I kind of feel like I always wanted a brother growing up, but I was the brother and I had two younger sisters. And I think I, I think I played that role well, but I always wanted brothers. And the wonderful thing about the church is I have so many brothers. I have so many men that, that advocate for me and, and me for them. I'm going to get home on, on Thursday, and then on Friday we're going to leave for our men's advance. We don't call it a retreat because men don't retreat, they advance. Is that right, guys? <laughs> Kurt, I know we talked about this. It's not theologically true very much, but like it's, it's, it's gimmicky, so let's just go with it, okay? We, <laughs> men don't retreat, they advance. And so we're going to go up to our men's advance, and it's one of my favorite weekends of the year because I'm with all of my brothers, and they fight for me, and I fight along for them. I always wanted a big brother, and I don't know, maybe you had a big brother and you got stuffed in a dryer too many times. You're like, yeah, no, that's not actually, it's actually very good. But I did. I wanted a big brother. The Bible tells us that um, we all have one. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is like our big brother who comes and he fights for us and he advocates for us and he fights battles that, that we can't and he fights people that are stronger than us and forces that are stronger than us and Jesus is like our big brother. Jesus is the one who went first like big brothers do and he's the one that's first to help when we need help that only he can offer and bring. And even though there is a sense that Jesus is like our big brother, um, he's so much more than that. And, and Jude, who is Jesus' actual brother, he knows this. Like Jude is his actual brother, and he knows that Jesus is more than a big brother, more than our big brother spiritually. And so Jude tells us that in verses 24 and 25, the last two verses in the book of Jude. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen, which means so, so be that. Jesus is not only our brother, he is our Savior, right? And he is our God. And I know we all know this. And if that's the case, then what is it that we need his help with? What is it that we need to be saved from? Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What does Jesus keep us from stumbling into? Well, the large answer, right, the big picture answer, we all know. Jesus keeps us from stumbling into sin, He's the one that keeps us from stumbling into anything that's less than God's best for us. His Holy Spirit convicts us. It warns us. It restrains us. It informs us. The Spirit brings to mind all the things that Jesus told us. The Spirit of God restrains us from stumbling into sin. That's the big picture. But I think, actually, that Jude has something more specific in mind. I think when he says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... I think it means something specific, and the reason I believe that, because that word stumbling is the only place it's used in the New Testament. And I think that 
Jude is trying to tell us something with this. This is the way that biblical authors do things. When they repeat things, it's their way of underlining or highlighting things, isn't it? And when they use words that they don't use elsewhere, it's their way of drawing our attention to something, like putting a huge spotlight on this idea of stumbling. And I think specifically here, the stumbling is into wrong thoughts and wrong beliefs about who God is and what he's like and what he wants from us and what he wants for us and how we should live our lives in light of that. I think specifically here, it's to him who's able to keep you from stumbling into disbelief. I mean, he's just talked about the three tactics we're to take, mercy and force and caution. That there are people that are leaning into this, this, this idea of disbelief and we're showed them mercy. And there's people that are not only leaning in but settling in and we're to use force. And there are people that are leaning in and settling in and really settling in and we're, we're supposed to go with caution. And I think this is why he says to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, stumbling into that, stumbling into the same thing that he's cautioned us not to stumble into in the previous verses. And I believe this is the cycle. It goes from doubt to disillusionment to disbelief. From doubt to disillusionment to disbelief. That there's something that, that we're tempted to doubt about who God is and what he's like and how he operates and what he wants for us and what he wants from us and what he wants our lives to be lived in light of. And we begin to doubt one of those things and then we find some kind of disillusionment there. We become disenfranchised. Use whatever dis word we want to use. And then we begin to disbelieve. And this was the path to disbelief from the beginning. We all know that God created our first parents in the garden in such a way that they didn't have any wrong thoughts or wrong beliefs about God. They knew him, listen to me, intimately, and they knew him perfectly. Isn't that, is that amazing? I, mean, I just want to ask you, have you ever had any doubts about God? About what he's like? about what he really wants from you, what he really wants for you. I'm just going to ask you to be real about that for a second. Have you ever had any doubts about who Jesus Christ is and the realities of the gospel working out in your own life and the lives of the people around you? Could you imagine a life where that, 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 that never happened? That was, that was the life that our first parents lived in for a long time. That was their life. And we don't know for how long. But it wasn't long enough, right? In fact, you all know the story. We know by chapter 3 in the Bible, we learn where all this changed and really not for the good. This changed when Adam and our first father and Eve, our first mother, believed a lie about God that from someone who sowed doubt into their minds. Genesis 3, we know the story. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, the, eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And they did. They took of it. They ate it. We know the story. And there's a sense, and I know we all know this, that we have all done this. We have all believed some kind of lie about who God was, who he is, and what he wants for us, and what he wants from us. Right, the New Testament tells us after this litany of, of the way that everyone else lives, it says to us, and such, what, were some of you. 
Like we've all had this moment. We've all been in this place. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. And Jude's going to bring us to that point here in a moment. And from that point forward of the moment of the fall, we see mankind stumbling into all kinds of things. <laughs> all the time. Including doubt and disbelief about who God is. And we see leaders doing that. We see Old Testament leaders and we see New Testament leaders. We'll talk about that in a moment. We see them stumbling into this kind of doubt. And we even see leaders today stumbling into doubt that leads to disbelief. And sometimes that's because we, we have things in our life that we're becoming disillusioned about. Life has not turned out the way we've anticipated or the way we've wanted. Right? Things just haven't turned out that, that well in our minds. This relationship isn't going so well. My career isn't going so well. Why did that thing happen? Why was it so difficult for us to have children? Why did we miscarry so many times? Why was our kid born with special needs and another's wasn't? You know, why have we struggled financially so much? Why did that relationship go south? Why did that person betray me? I thought that person was my friend. You know, why have my circumstances been like this and everyone else's circumstances been like that. I mean, the list goes on and on. We could list all the tragic things that happen in, in people's lives. Why is there a guy walking around here at Hume Lake who has terminal brain cancer, and if God doesn't do something in six months, he's going to go be with Jesus, but he's the kind of guy that just says, I want to be at Hume Lake and serve anyway. And he's not talking about it. He's just walking around serving. I've seen him a half a dozen times. He's as joyful as any of the other staff members. Like, why is that the case for him and not someone else? Maybe you've had that kind of thing in your life. You know, why has this gal in my church struggled with cancer for the last three years in and out? She's the sweetest girl you could ever meet. You know, sometimes in life, it causes us to be disillusioned. And some leaders even go to doubt when things like that happen. Other times, it's ministry. It's ministry-related. You know, why did this happen to me with this guy twice? Why do those people plan, you know, plan to plant a church outside of the authority or the advice of the elders and just plant it at night and then just go do it? Why did my fourth through sixth grade guy go with him and then come back three years later and apologize? You know, why all the tragedy in the life of the church? You know, why hasn't the church grown more? Why aren't there more disciples? You know, why don't we see more movement of God in our city? You know, why hasn't ministry turned out the way that we anticipated it would? Sometimes these things make ministers and pastors disillusioned and it leads to some kind of doubt. We end up believing some of it. Sometimes it's culture. Why is culture moving this way? Lyle told us this morning that Christians are actually increasing around the world, not decreasing. And some of that's biological and some of it's evangelistic. But the world is not getting better, it doesn't seem, right? And so, like, there are all of these questions that we as pastors deal with because, listen to me, we are people before we're pastors. And we can stumble in all of these ways. It's possible to stumble in two ways, and Tim Keller talks a lot about this, and if you've listened to a lot of his preaching, you know Tim talks a lot about religion and rebellion. Like when we stumble into disbelief, one of the ways that we walk is we walk in rebellion against God, and I believe Jude has been describing a lot of these people that are, that are living in rebellion to God now. They stumbled into disbelief through rebellion, and some people stumble into disbelief, and they just do it through religion. They make up their own new image of what God is like and how they're going to get to that, get to him. And, and that's what religion is. It's just making God in your own image and making a system to get to him or to please him or to make him happy with you again. 
But Jesus, our big brother, and much more than that, he wasn't content to leave humanity in this place, right? You know the story. He wasn't content to leave us walking down this road of just either rebellion against God or religion, trying to make our way back to him, create it in our own image, and then make our way to him. He wasn't content to leave us in that place, but he would come to us, and he would come for us, and he would fight for us. And that word, that phrase, for us, is a really, really important phrase, because Jesus did everything that he did for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. If you open the New Testament today, when you, you know, get back to your room, you'll find that that phrase for us is used over 20 times. Jesus lived for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. And I know you know all this, and I'm going to remind you about it this evening, that Jesus came to live for us. And this is really important because I think often as pastors, we actually emphasize the death of Jesus so often, and rightly so, that Jesus came to die for us. But Jesus came to live for us. And it's so important because it wouldn't mean anything unless we understand the life of Jesus. The death of Jesus wouldn't mean anything to us unless we understand the life of Jesus, that Jesus came to live for us. And I just want to remind you tonight that Jesus came to live for you. In the midst of whatever kind of doubt you've ever had, Jesus came to live for you and to live a life that was perfectly pleasing to God for you. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted or tested as we are yet without sin. Jesus lived a life we could not live, a life of perfect faith and trust in God. And I don't think any of us is going to sit here this evening and say, we've lived a life of perfect faith and trust toward God as a person, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a minister. But Jesus did. Jesus lived a life of perfect faith and trust in God. Jesus lived this life for us. And you guys know the next part of the story is that Jesus died for us. He not just only lived for us, but he died for us. And this is also a critical part of the truth of the gospel. We would never have the perfect, sinless life of Jesus attributed to us if Jesus didn't also go to the cross and die for us on the cross and in our place and for our sins. We would have never have our imperfect, sinless life given to him and have his our, our sinful life, rather, given to him and have his, his perfect, sinless life given to us. Luther calls this the great exchange or the lovely exchange, right, where, where we, he gets our sin and we get his righteousness. For our sake, he made him to be no sin who knew, who be, for, our, for our sake, he made him to be sin, forgive me, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All our sin put on Jesus, all his sinlessness given to us when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. So all the times that you doubted but you never even told anyone, maybe even your spouse, all the times in the back of your mind where you've questioned him or you've questioned what he's done or what he's allowed and it's caused some degree of doubt to come up in your mind or some degree of disillusionment to come up in your mind, he's always kept you. You've never gone to disbelief. We'll get there in a moment. And now we don't have to stumble anymore. Because when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ, his life lived for us and his death attributed to us. We're forgiven for our sin and now we're free to live our lives the way he intended for us to live them in the beginning. We don't have to stumble into sin anymore. 
He actually keeps us from stumbling. We can live a life free from stumbling into disbelief. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I mean, you all know the story and maybe you've seen the diagram, right? Like Adam and Eve were able to sin and able not to sin. And after the fall, all of humanity was, was able to sin, but unable not to sin. And in Jesus, when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus and we're forgiven for our sin and we're free to live the life that he's called us to from the beginning, now we are able to sin, but we are also able not to sin. We're able not to fall into disbelief. To him who was able to keep you from stumbling, you don't have to fall into disbelief. You can struggle with doubt. And you can wrestle with some degree of disillusionment, but you do not have to stumble into disbelief. Matter of fact, if you're his, you will not stumble into disbelief. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But Jesus didn't just live for us and die for us. You know the story. Jesus came to rise for us, which is also important because the only way that it would mean anything that Jesus lived for us and died for us is that he also rose for us to prove, to authenticate the reality of those things. That on the cross, Jesus fought for us and defeated once and for all our enemies of Satan and sin and death. Like, your enemies are done for. Jesus has already defeated them. Satan is, is done. He already defeated Satan. Sin, it's, it's done for. He's already defeated it in ultimate sense. Death, he's already defeated death. Jesus has fought for us and his resurrection authenticates all of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope. How? Through, where's our hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose and he did all of that even for leaders who sometimes doubt, even for leaders who are sometimes disillusioned, even for leaders who might be something like me and you. And let's please not kid ourselves that we've ever not questioned or not doubted or not been disillusioned to one degree or the other. And we don't have to be embarrassed because some of Jesus' disciples dealt with the same thing. We all know Doubting Thomas, John chapter 20. Post-resurrection, post the life of Jesus, lived perfectly in front of his eyes. Post the death of Jesus, him witnessing. Post the resurrection of Jesus, everyone else seeing and saying they believe. Thomas says, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, you know what he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never what? I will never believe. There's no disbelief. He just says, I will never actually believe, much less disbelief. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. You know the story. And Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. <laughs> Could you imagine Thomas at that moment? Just declaring, hey, unless I see it, unless I put my hands and like, I'm never going to believe. And Jesus is like, hey, Thomas. Put your finger here. And see my hands? 
put your hand out and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's, that's you and that's me. We're included in that bunch. I know it's referring to specific things, and I believe it's also referring to every disciple that would ever place their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. Disciples like me and disciples like you. The the resurrection of Jesus, it proves these things to us, and it guarantees the same for us when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him. You can be believing, and I know you are believing. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have begun... If we've been united with him in his death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We will one day rise the way Jesus did, and we will have the life that he has. And one day Jesus will return. Because Jesus came to live for us, and because Jesus came to die for us, and because Jesus came to raise for us, Jesus also says he he will return for us, and we believe that he will one day return, and that is the consummation when all things are made new. I think here Jude says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from falling into disbelief. You may have doubts at times, and you may get disillusioned, but you're never falling into disbelief. To him who was able to keep you from stumbling as you deal with other people who are leaning into disbelief. To him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Right? On that day, the fight will be over once and for all. There's no more fighting to be done. Between now and that day, like we are contending for this gospel. We are contending for these truths and realities. You know, Jude starts with God chooses us, God loves us, and God keeps us. And then at the end, he wraps it up with the the bookend again, telling us that, reminding us that now to him who was able to what? To keep you from stumbling into this and to present you blameless before his presence of his glory with great joy. To present you blameless because the blood of Christ covers all of your sin. Even those little moments of doubt or disbelief if we can call it that in the back of your mind, even those little moments of disillusionment where you attribute something to Jesus that's not true of him and you have to go back and seek his forgiveness, even in the things that that only you know between you and him, blameless before him. Adam was able to sin and able not to sin, Adam and Eve. After that, all of humanity was able to sin but unable not to sin. In the coming of Jesus, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, his people are able to sin and also able not to sin. You don't have to stumble into those things. But on this day, after the return of Jesus, all it is is unable to sin. Unable to sin. The fight is over. It's done. Jude wraps up his letter with these realities. And he ends with, think an encouragement about our response. What should our response be to hearing these truths, being reminded again about, about Jesus and what he's done for us and presenting us blameless and keeping us from stumbling? What should we do? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority 
before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. I think our response is worship. I think our response is worship that wells from hearts that believe. Our response is worship that wells from hearts that believe. To him be glory that all the weight and the honor is for him. Majesty, all the greatness is, is, is attributed to him. Dominion, like he has all power, authority. He has all authority. And, and, and we end this letter, and, and we, we, we end this letter, but we, we continue to live our lives in, in worship unto him. The response is worship. The response is awe. I think Jude is trying to, 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 to create a sense of awe for them here at the end. To him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. To him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time now and forevermore. And so tonight, um, I just thought it was appropriate that as we end the book of Jude with this sort of doxology and this call to worship, that we just sing a few songs and we pour out our hearts in worship to him. Um, and I know this is always why we pour out our hearts in worship to him, for who he is to us and what he's done for us. In the end of the book of Jude, I think we just, we're stuck in this place where what else are we going to do? I think Jude is saying, what other response is there to a God who has chosen you, to a God who loves you, and to a God who will keep you? When you see other people going down this road and you see the tragedy of their lives and you see the wake and you see the destruction and you see all that goes along with it, it's never going to be true of your life because he has chosen you and he loves you and he will keep you. And the only response, I believe, is awe and gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. And we do that in all kinds of ways, but one of the ways we tend to do that is through song. So can I invite you to stand and let's just spend a little time singing pouring out praise and worship to Jesus. He's the only one that deserves it.